Welcome to Reengage, where we rewatch TNG, a show we loved when we were younger, and now reengage episode by episode to see if it holds up to older eyes. On the last episode of Reengage, we had a blast talking with Carlos Cisco. We keep the good times rolling with another special guest to wrap up season five, episode eight, Unification Two. But before we get to our guests, let's say hi to the regs. Miss Kate, how you do? Uh, I do so well. I am so excited to talk about this episode. I had blacked out the B story like completely from my memory. And so I am very excited to talk about this episode. Greg, how you do? Same. Excited to jump in and hear everything uh, about uh, the unification of two peoples coming together just like the German peoples. all right eric with a k how you do did you say regs or dregs and either way (laughs) here i am Uh, it is delightful to see you all and i can't wait to talk about this one all right and joining us on the pod we have eric with a C, Jay Robbins. Uh, Eric has worked on Deadwood the Movie, Homecoming, Falling Water, uh, Last Days of Vietnam, just to name a few. And uh, to really tie the room together, he's also worked on a Star Trek Discovery. Uh, Eric with a C, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you guys for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, Eric, we always like to start out with um, a little uh, uh, introduction by the guest star. That is, Tell us how you were introduct, uh, introduced to the Trek-verse and became a part of it. For sure. Well, I grew up watching the original series mostly, primarily the movies. My parents were big Trekkies. My mom and her twin sister were very young when the original series were on, and one had a crush on Captain Kirk and one had a crush on Spock. And I think you know, it was something that my mom had a fondness for and my dad had a fondness for. So that is what got me into it from a very young age. Uh, I was thinking about how old I was when I was rewatching this episode because this episode was 91. So it was like I was like four, I think. But uh, but uh, I think, you know, I can't forget what year I was, how old I was and what year. But um, it, you know, Next Generation is a show that I got into in the sixth or seventh season, too. But I those were the two first loves I had. I remember drawing pictures of the Enterprise, uh, the the Constitution refit because it's really hard to draw the Enterprise D when you're seven years old. There's too many curves and weird shapes. So I was drawing a lot of Kirk's Enterprise. And uh, I, I specifically remember always being drawn to, this is when I really started becoming aware of Star Trek. I remember knowing kind of who Spock was around. I, I, I vaguely recall them advertising Undiscovered Country, which was you know basically kind of a tie-in for this episode. But uh, that's how I got into it. And I, I, it was just this thing I always loved. And eventually, professionally, I came out here. I was working in post-production for a long time, and I'd always wanted to be in the writer's room. I've been trying to move over. And this was not intentional, but it, I got the offer to move over on Star Trek, which was huge for me. I, I joined Discovery as an assistant. And literally, like the writer's production assistant, the lowest, uh, the lowest level person in this, uh, the writing staff. But I was where I wanted to be. And then over the course of time there, I got promoted. I got to write two episodes. I became a writer on the show. But that was kind of my way to it professionally and how I came into it. Uh, you know, uh, just it's been this love that I've had for a long time. I would say around seven or eight. That's when I really remember Star Trek kind of planting its tendrils in my brain. 
Well, nice. Thank you for sharing the story and uh, for reminding me how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Since I was in college when this uh, episode debuted. Um, all right, let's jump into it. We have Stardate 45245.8, which is the week of November 11th, 1991. Greg, do as you will do and make us sad. <laughs> this time I'm not going to make anybody sad. Oh. Uh, uh, there are, of course, ongoing stories regarding the dissolution of the uh, Soviet Union and uh, lots of uh, shakeups happening there politically. But nothing really happened this week uh, other than uh, on November 13th, two days after this aired, uh, Boston Red Sox, Roger Clemens won the AL Cy Young Award. Uh, and uh, the day before that, Tom Glavin won the NL Cy Young Award, uh, and uh, that is not that interesting, but it is what was happening <laughs> that week. <laughs> All right. Well, usually we turn to Kate to make us happy. Uh, now I'm turning you to lift us up. All right. I, <laughs> Get the energy going. I'm, I'm here for you. Uh, number one on the music charts continued to be Cream by Prince and the New Power Generation, which continues to scandalize and titillate uh, genera new generations as they discover it. Uh, on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, the number one movie was Curly Sue. Oh, Curly <laughs> Sue. <laughs> I remember the cover for that. The, I do, the I, you know what? I don't think I ever saw it. I was a little too old for that movie. Like, like I think, you know, being in middle school, I was like, oh, it's about a kid. Uh, on television, Full House aired its 100th episodes and the twins were born. Ah, the twins, born to Aunt Becky, who never went on to be known for anything else. <laughs> Good for her. Really uh, curious about their college education. I read that too, and I was confused because I thought, like, didn't it start with uh, uh, the Olsen twins as a, the cast? But I was like, oh, no, they had twins while also having twins in the cast as a single character. So I was very confused by that fact. I, I did uh, have a moment where I was like, does that mean they have to have quadruplets on the set? So that there's always, <laughs> like I did some mental math. There's just, Is that they, how it works, Eric? It was, it was actually just triplets, but they just have a third one that they set up the lights around. So that one gets a little more cooked than the other two. <laughs> <laughs> there's a dark and that's how they, <laughs> And that's how they became a Scarlet Witch. <laughs> uh, on the nice uh, SNL front, new cast members joined Ellen Cleghorn, Melanie Hutzel, and Beth Cahill. And I felt terrible because I did not remember Beth Cahill at all. I looked it up. Uh, she existed and was in <laughs> sketches. <laughs> so good job, Beth Cahill and Melanie Hutzel and Ellen Cleghorn. Uh, they added women that year. Good, good on SNL for 1991. <laughs> suddenly being like, you know what we could use? I've heard women are funny sometimes. <laughs> Not just Gilda Radner either. Right. There's a couple others. Uh, and that's what was happening in pop culture. Do 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 do. Ah. All right, our director was Cliff Bowl. He did 25 episodes of TNG, 10 of Voyager, 7 of DS9, and a whole lot of other credits, starting with Beretta in 1976 uh, and ending with Supernatural in 2007. Um, so he was pretty active, especially in those uh, sci-fi, fantasy, and action-oriented TV shows. Um, teleplay was by Michael Piller, and we have story by Rick Berman and uh, Michael Piller. And... Uh, 
Eric with a C, when I was looking over the writer's credits for this episode, it hit me like Gene Rodberry is still credited as a writer. Um, the producers are still credited as a writer. And there's four other people credited as writers on this episode. Can you sort of break down like the the behind the scenes, pull that the curtain on why there's so many writers and why uh, the, the creator is still listed as a writer? Well, so for this episode, the actual script that was written, as far as I understand it, and, and there's always going to be caveats when you're talking about especially other shows because their processes are all unique. But by and large, my guess would be Michael Pillars, the person who wrote the screenplay. He has the teleplay credit, so that makes sense. So usually the teleplay, the teleplay credit is whoever wrote the actual script. If there's a story credit like you see here where it's Rick Berman and Michael Pillar, what happened there is probably they were developing it in the room and Berman, uh, you know, had significant contributions to the storyline or was involved in helping Pillar develop it for pitching. Sometimes, you know, that would be my guess is they kind of share the story credit, but then when it comes time to actually write the script, it's Pillar. Uh, creators, overall creators like Roddenberry, if you look at my episodes of Discovery, Roddenberry is still credited. And, you know, Roddenberry has a memorial right. credit on this episode. So it's, it's partially there's, if there's a created by or a based upon credit, that person usually gets some sort of tangible they'll have a that they get lumped in all together on imdb under the writing credits but that's what you're seeing there it's probably mm. it's probably um roddenberry maybe this is more common now but if you look at if you look at like discovery michelle paradise and alex kurtzman show up as our writers because they were our overall showrunners right. and executive producers and it's common on shows the showrunner you know does a pass on the scripts that's i don't know if that's what they did on next gen because they were doing 26 and the 90s are very different than how we make tv now but that's probably it's a mixture of somebody created the show so there's a they they're considered to have like a a soft writing, I don't want to say a soft writing credit, but a writing credit for IMDb. <laughs> then there's executive producers who are credited on all episodes. But the the credits for specific episodes to look for are teleplay by or screenplay by, by and story by. Those are the ones that are so specific to the individual episodes. Because again, if you look at IMDb, it's not the greatest either because staff writers will show up listed on every episode. And like I was a staff writer in Discovery. And while I work on every episode of the show, it's, it's just because of my contract that I'm credited as a staff writer and it gets lumped in that way. But it, there will be episodes mm. that I, you know, didn't write a scene for or something like that. Uh, it, the, the, the long answer is it's a big jumbled political mess. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for clearing it up. <laughs> uh, let's take a look at the Nemesis files for this episode. Uh, as uh, Greg has alluded to last episode and at the top of this one, uh, unification is, uh, or, or the unification of Germany was used as a backdrop um, for this show. Um, and here's a little stick a pin in it the moment. Uh, Michael, Michael Piller has said about this episode, uh, quote, uh, he was disappointed in his teleplay uh, that it couldn't provide more chemistry uh, in the Spock-Picard scenes. Um, so as we examine the show and we see these two come together, I want to go back to that and see uh, how you guys feel about if there is chemistry or not. Uh, he went on to say, uh, Pillar, about those scenes. A lot of it was flat, talky, and dull. So again, put a pin in that. And as we revisit these scenes, uh. I want to revisit that and see <laughs> how everyone but Eric feels since he's already let us know. <laughs> Uh, all right, and then the Quailer 2 writers piano being, bar. Uh, oh, sorry. I was just saying, writers being self-conscious, that never happens. Never, ever, <laughs> ever. 
Uh, uh, the Quailar 2 Piano Bar is a redressing of the attack cruiser uh, Bortos Cargo Bay from our episode Redemption. Um, and uh, we get some Andorian Blues. I also want to revisit that later. Uh, and a Trojan Horse. Three ships to attack a planet? We'll revisit that as well. Uh, Eric. What? What about these guest stars? Well, there's too many of them, once again. It's just a whole cavalcade of guest stars. Uh, <clears throat> a lot of them are people we are well familiar with. You know, we spoke briefly about the brilliance that is Stephen Root last week. We see him some more this week. And, of course, Malachi Throne mm. as Pardek. Uh, we spoke not only of his career, but of his uh, name. <clears throat> we, of course, have Norman Large back as Neral. Uh, quite the career he had until not long after this. A lot of people... This was kind of both the top and near the end uh, in this uh, group of guest stars. We have William Bastiani as Omag in this, who has quite the nice feature. Uh, he was in four episodes of um, In Living Color and then also kind of uh, faded away until he passed away a few years later. Uh, but we, of course, need to talk about our Harriet Leiter as uh, <laughs> Amaria, our, our blues singer, uh, in one of the, the better uh, blues bars in the quadrant. Um, <laughs> I went right to her, as I'm sure several of us did. Uh, I had forgotten of her as a character, and then everything came rushing back. She's one of the sexiest and funniest uh, uh, aliens in Star Trek history, in my opinion. And uh, the actor herself had a terrific career uh, with uh, guest stars and things like this and the commish and other things in the early 90s, early to mid 90s, and then uh, also kind of faded away in the early 2000s. Um, but uh, we are treated with an all-timer uh, co-star performance here in this particular episode. Uh, we didn't speak much about Daniel Roebuck, one of the greats in um, The Fugitive, and it's... Uh, <laughs> uh, unfortunate sequel uh he is one of the u.s marshals under the command of tommy lee jones and you will recognize his work both in this and in that if you can just see through the romulan forehead i know you can do it uh that's basically it on guest stars they go on uh with a list as long as my forearm but i'm cutting it off right there all right thank you sir uh so let's crack it open uh we pick up right where we left off from the last episode with a little bit of why are you acting so messed up towards me? Why are you acting so messed up towards me? By which I mean, both Picard and Spock want to know why the other one is here on Romulus. Uh, there's a lot to unpack in this scene, a lot of back and forth debate. We have uh, Cowboys, Unhappy News, Protective Best Friends, and no small amount of uh, hopeful endings. Eric, with a C, uh, what would you like to unpack from this scene? For me, rewatching this episode was a lot of fun because it reminded me that I started with the original series. Next Gen, I started with the original series and I have a lot of love for it. But I find, and you can correct me if you guys feel differently, but I find when I introduce it to people now contemporarily, it helps if they have an understanding of the franchise than to leap back to straight back to 1966. So Next Gen, you know, when I was younger, Next Gen really capture my imagination and it's become my personal favorite of the series. It's like a warm blanket. And I think a lot of people have that reaction, but for me rewatching this episode, seeing Picard and Spock in a scene together, I think it's funny because I, I, I'm familiar with Pillar's criticisms and I will say 
Pillar created, you know, two of the series with DS9 and Voyager. He was a prolific writer and director on the series, on these, on the franchise. Uh, nobody, you know, nobody's more critical, I think, of Star Trek than Star Trek fans, but also nobody's more critical in that subset than the writers, because I think, I think they're incredible together. And there's a scene later where we're really going to talk about why I think Picard works so well with Spock. But for me, it's... Every scene with them, I think, is great. And I think they have, I think they have great chemistry. But um, I understand being close to it, why you would feel maybe it's a little talky, and we're in that brown cave for quite a lot of it. <laughs> uh, Kate, what about you? Anything um, from this rather long scene uh, that grabbed you, and you want to um, um, bring a highlight or two? Uh, yeah, I do want to highlight uh, what was just said, in that I do believe. Like I wrote down wonderful, like as soon as that mm. scene started between the two of them, because it was just and and maybe it's because I am looking at it through all of these years of fandom and um, and love for these two characters. It's just impossible not to feel giddy uh, in during this scene to me. Um, to just see them together and doing a walk and talk through the caves is just wonderful. Um, uh, I love that moment where they're sparring, sparring, sparring sort of at the beginning. And then he has to, Picard has to let him know that Sarek is dead and he takes that step away. Mm. Walk with me. Right. And I just yeah. think that's really beautiful. Um, it gave me goosebumps then I, I, just talking about it now. It's just a, it's just a really beautiful moment. And it's very similar to the reaction in turn of um, or the, the way it brought um, Sarek some lucidity mm -hmm. when Picard mentions Spock to him and he comes out of the fog and then uh, Spock seems to let down his guard and his almost confrontational uh, approach to Picard and that like it, it turned. So there was a nice bridge between the two there, I thought. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Eric, with a K, what do you think about this scene? Or what do you take out? I, you know, it, it's just reiterating what Eric and Kate have already said in that I was immediately comfortable with these two actors. Like, it's, it's you know, a character that now I've come to love for 30 years, but at the time I had already loved for four. Like, it was, it was not that he still had to win me over young Jean-Luc, the scrappy new captain. Uh, <laughs> like I was already pretty in on the Jean-Luc uh, era, but uh, you know, as all of us here, we came up with Spock. So seeing someone who had been in this character, you know, for the better part of his career for, you know, 25 years at this point uh, with Picard, like, it never struck me as talky. It struck me as, right. you know, being carried along with two of the best who've ever done it. Uh, and it was the moments of silence in each of these scenes that really struck me. And I was like, oh, they're giving them real space to to let things sink in and to go through these moments with these uh, these actors who have so embodied these characters. And I was just so delighted by it that when I heard you say something about how he thought it was too talky, I was <laughs> I'm so disappointed. I'm like, Gave I it think a boo. we all want, yeah, yeah. I, I think we all want to have written like the perfect actor proof scene that we forget <laughs> that sometimes 
when we've written this scene and we get two of the greats, even if we don't like the dialogue, the dialogue is suddenly fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, I just think these are some of the best scenes in TNG so far. Yeah. And let's go complete the going around the horn. Greg, what about you? Any uh, particular bit of information or uh, anything from this that, that you want to, to bring up and highlight? I love rewatching this from the perspective uh, that we have now of uh, Star Trek fans who understand how important this meeting is and the context it has in the franchise. We didn't really necessarily get that back in 1991, but the fact that he's uh, mentioning the plot events of Star Trek VI a month before Star Trek VI comes out um, is really tantalizing and interesting and being like, oh, they, yeah. they thought about it. They actually did think about how... Um, you know, Star Trek fans in the future might see it. It reminded me of, I don't want to compare necessarily this to Shakespeare, but it has that Shakespearean type of quality where the audience watching it have a completely different context and understanding than is what the actual text is. Uh, and so, yeah, Michael Pillar, you know, you're awesome. This actually works really, really well uh, in that situation. And having the space to have these two actors embody these characters and just play on a relatively simple set uh, and, and and have the emotions and the storytelling uh, be the forefront of it is is just delicious to to watch. You cannot reference Shakespeare without doing it in the original. Klingon. <laughs> 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 well done, sir. When I have to say, like I, because I when I rewatched the episode before this and I I did research, I've always it, it's partially because I it was just a young age when they came out, but I always thought that this episode aired a little after Undiscovered Country. And so when I was doing the research, I was like, oh my gosh, it's a month. It came out a month before because Undiscovered Country is, to me, is the most underrated of the Star Trek films. I absolutely, it's probably my second of the favorite of all of them. I mean, everybody loves Khan, yeah. but I mean, but uh, but Undiscovered Country, it, it asks really hard questions of the heroes, which is what I like about it. And it, it puts them in a, a position of personal discomfort where they have to push through for the prospect of peace, which is what I think this episode does really well. Like, this episode in Undiscovered Country shake hands really well. And now having like kind of the, the meta context to it, I appreciate it even more. And the writing too, the with Spock, the teasing of that movie is genius. I actually saved the quote, which is Spock says, it was I who committed Captain Kirk to that peace mission and, is, and I who had to bear the responsibility for the consequences to him and his crew. Quite simply, I am unwilling to risk anyone's life but my own on this occasion. Such a great little tease of like, a movie's coming out in a month and a bunch of wild stuff happens, but the only thing you know from this episode is the Klingons and the Federation make peace, which we already had known for years by that point because of Next Generation, and Spock is going to live. Those are the only two things, but everything else... It's a really, <laughs> it's a really clever tie-in, uh, I think. As well as thematically uh, it, similar to his death in, in you know, uh, uh, Wrath of Khan, as we've mentioned, right? Yeah. Like the fact that he has to say, you know, the needs of the, the, the few or the one outweigh the needs of the many. And he's playing without ID here. He's like, I don't want to do that again. I don't want to set up my people to be killed uh, for something that I believe in anymore. And it's, it's, it makes total sense as to all of his motivations of why, why he went to Romulus on his own. Yeah, and it's something we've talked about quite recently, the last episode, I believe. Uh, the the Easter egg for us fans that stick with it. Um, we didn't know what a treat we were being given with the hint of the Kittimer uh, conference there. Uh, but man, when you go back, you're like, oh, wow. 
wow, they just totally tipped their hat. We didn't know it. Uh, and that's that's just amazing. Uh, and some of the things that really I loved about this scene was at the at the very front of it, Spock is very confrontational. And the way he he hits the word Starfleet really hard when he's like, "This is no business of Starfleet." Um, <laughs> but then it's an immediate payoff with that line that uh, Eric just read to us because it was out of concern. It wasn't out of derision for Federation. He was trying to protect them and bear the burden himself and carry it by himself because he didn't want anyone else uh, to be put in harm's way, which is just a really nice thing by Pillar and by Nimoy to uh, have that set up in reversal. Um, getting the, 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 uh, that Kinemer conference ref, though, that's just the absolute best. One month before anybody knew what the hell he was talking about. It's just right there, ready for you to take a bite. All right, we won't linger on any of the other scenes as long as that, but there was so much right there uh, that you just have to. And when you teleport yourself back to seeing, especially if you're my age and you really grew up with TOS, um, I wasn't alive when it was airing, but it was on every single weekend. And we watched it. I watched it Saturday mornings. It was one of my cartoon shows. Um, and uh, to see Spock come back to the small screen, we had we had the pleasure of seeing, you know, all through the 80s. We had every couple of years we got to see him on the big screen. But coming back into TNG, I mean, this was monumental. This was uh, this was seeing all the Batmans in the flash like it was <laughs> really, really fun. Uh, all right. Only good. And then a nice little. Yeah, only good. Only good. You're right. Uh, and then a nice little. Um, uh, I love Spock's uh, evoking Kirk at the end of the scene. And it's kind of funny because like you remind me a lot of Kirk. And then later on, he's like, everything about you is nothing like Kirk. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I flagged that in my notes, not that angle of it, but I, I remember vaguely the Picard versus Kirk debate. It was largely settled mm -hmm. by the time yeah. I came into the fandom, I think, or at least the two camps had made their, their peace. But right. Kirk was my first captain. And one thing that I always have pushed against, and, I, and I'm excited to see what they're doing. You know, they've been doing more with Kirk on Strange New Worlds. But one thing that always concerns me with Kirk as a character is when you see him like in pop culture outside of the franchise, he gets removed. He gets like reduced down to he's the sex cowboy. Like he just, he plays by his own rules. <laughs> he plays by his own rules and he just sleeps with anything. And that's just not who Captain Kirk really was in the original series. And especially in the movies, you know, in the movies, it's really about Kirk's maturation. If you want to take an arc across those six, seven, if you include generations, cause even it kind of continues that, you know, it's about him being a figurehead. And for me, Kirk and Picard, the elements I like about both of them are shared. So I was really, it, it, that the line makes me happy when Nimoy, when yeah. Spock compares the two of them, because Kirk and Picard are both very clever. They're very cunning, but they are also, they feel a distance between them and the rest of the crew because they feel, I think, more than any captain in the franchise outside of maybe Janeway they really feel the burden of command. I can't tell you how many episodes of the original series Kirk says. The 411 are, that number changes every episode of the original series, but Kirk says, <laughs> the 400 and some odd souls I have on that ship, he says it multiple times. Right. And so, Picard's got kids. He's got kids to deal with. The yeah. whole family issues right. on the Enterprise right. D. Uh. All Riker's single moms. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, all right. So after our monumentous meeting between uh, um, Picard and Spock, we go to credits and we come back out of credits. Uh, Data has returned to the Klingon ship. Uh, and his line, thank you for your cooperation, basically sums up that whole scene. Um, <laughs> because he, uh, Data has an easy answer to every objection that Steven Root's character gives him. Uh, but I thought that Stephen Root did a great job with the way he acquiesces. His the little answers, like he at first he's like, mm. he gives a little hmm for one, yes, I'll let that happen, and then uh, whatever the Klingon word is for yes, like the shah or da, uh, he says, and it still makes him look like he's powerful. Uh, what about you guys in this scene <laughs> in, uh, with Data and uh, uh, the brilliant Stephen Root? There's this beautiful moment where. Uh when data's offering like look we'll we'll crack that database that you've been looking at and steven root does this like little lick of the lips that could be like over the top and it's just not like it's just like it's just this subtle sort of like yes tasty like and maybe for me it's not over the top because you know you've got that makeup that you have to get through and you have to be able to you know emote some sort of something but it's just this delicious little moment of like tasting the 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 power that is going to come their way well and the knowledge that the camera is pointing at his face but data is ostensibly not able to see it like those those little theatrical moments uh where the actor gets to show on their face what's going on and and think the uh, other character is just wholly not able to see it are, are such saving graces for us as audience members. I, I think to the fun of the scene, when I was reviewing it, you're right. It all boils down to essentially, let us do this. Okay. You know, it's <laughs> in, terms of the, in terms of the overall plot, right. it's very small, but I think what's really helpful about this scene is combined with the, the teaser, which is all Picard and Spock in the, sub, the subterranean Romulan caves, is... It really reinforces how kind of jumbled all the roles and settings are in this two-parter. We're not on the Enterprise primarily. They're not in Starfleet uniforms. They're in disguise. They're on Romulus. They're in a Klingon ship. All of the kind of power dynamics and roles are really jumbled in this two-parter. And I think that's one of the reasons it works so well, especially... I'm sure you guys have talked about this a little, and I think you, you touched on it a little in Redemption. But Next Gen especially, but like all the treks, I think... This is just TV in general. The first part's always the exciting one, and then the second part is, oh, crap, we came back, and now we have to have a conclusion. Like Speaking from the writer's perspective, and <laughs> and I, I find, personally, two-parters, part two is usually the weaker of the two episodes. And I, fe I feel like in Unification, both episodes are really, really strong, and it's a testament to their point on the history of the franchise with Nimoy, but also everything's just everybody's roles are just so different than what they normally are that it makes it it just i don't know it gives the episode a lot of life when mm -hmm. I, I get if you look at it visually i understand pillar's concern that it seems talky but for me it's it's so dynamic in that sense that everybody's doing something new and what it sets up for me is that data is the similar function of the enterprise and the crew that spock was uh for the original series right he's the guy who gets the sciencey stuff done in a in a way that is brilliant and different than anybody else can, right? And that's what Spock does, and so it almost sets up that scene later on between the two of them and them coming together uh, really well too. Well, and two things just struck me uh, from what both the the two Eric's had mentioned um, uh, when Mister Curry was talking about the way it was shot, and we see the actor. 
it never bothered me that there was a forced perspective in that one. It <laughs> seemed natural and uh, like it belonged there. And when um, and, and when Eric Robbins had mentioned, uh, you know, part twos usually not being that good, it it struck me, and I actually wrote into the original my original opening how. For some reason, when Magil Barrett did the recap, and she goes, and now the conclusion, I was like, who, who? It's the conclusion. Majel, Majel Barrett is what I said <laughs> every time. When Majel Barrett said, I'll put that in the editing, so no one will ever know. No, that's too much work. I feel like it's a bit all right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's ongoing. Three years, four years now. We, uh, and it's honest too. <laughs> That's what makes it sad and funny. Uh, back on Romulus, uh, Spock and Picard share some soup over which Spock uh, breaks down how popular the unification movement is. Uh, and before they even get to taste the soup, Pardic takes them away uh, for a little walk. Um, Mr. Curry, how about the lying in this scene? The lying. The lying. What do you think oh, about Pardic's lying, lying yes. in this scene? I, I think kind of all the way through some of these uh, are making some interesting choices. Like I, I never quite trust Pardek, but I can't, I can't take that away from the possibility that I knew because I'd seen it before. He's chosen to be a very good liar, which is nice right. because the way other people talk about him, he needs to be good at lying if he's pulling off what they think of him as being this man of the people leftist, uh, you know, uh, personality like if, if he's really not that then he needs to have at least been a good enough liar to fool many 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 uh, people and we we want him to be good enough to have fooled spock so it's a good choice as an actor uh, uh for him to be this good at it i agree and i'll tip my hand i was fooled by both of our surprise baddies in this episode i thought the lying as the actors was really well they never winked at the camera or did some glare or something that let me know, ooh, I shouldn't trust them. Um, so I thought it was well done on both accounts. The soup is very different, though. It is uh, got some additives uh, <laughs> yeah. than the soup that they had in the last one. Uh, doesn't look so, as thick. Right? Uh, but also probably not doesn't taste good uh, to either of their palates because they. you're right. They immediately just leave it there. And I was weirded out by how that shot lingered on the empty table for probably way too long. <laughs> well, you know, in the last episode, it was chowder, Romulan chowder. Ah, this one was That's more of a bisque. Did anybody else wonder, like, the one thing about costuming in this episode is, like, Spock is never in disguise. Yes. Yeah. He's very clearly a Vulcan, <laughs> and he's just walking around. I, when I had in my notes, Detan just calls him Spock. They, he just walks up and casually drops, like, the name of one of the most famous Federation Vulcans in in the middle of their capital and i i was thinking like spock's not even under a fake name and i understand vulcans if they can lie or not is kind of inconsistent let's be real but you know vulcans tend to tell right. the truth but i i i have it in my notes it's like detan just walks up and it's just like hey mr spock thanks for coming to romulus there's no no subtlety right. <laughs> Which is believable when Pardak says, like, hey, we shouldn't be talking about this here and kind of dresses the guy down. The other thing I didn't even think of until now, but was the location, because I always assumed geography wise that this area was far away from the Romulan capital on the planet. 
Um, and so, but they seem to kind of shift back and forth. So maybe it's not, maybe it's just, it is part of this major city, but I, I thought they were a little bit hidden away uh, from the setup from Unification 1. That's fair. That might be my own assumption, but it's also in the Star Trek universe, it gets, I, I noticed this in this episode as well, I think, or no, it was, sorry, it was, uh, I watched Unification 3, which is the episode we did on Discovery, and we had a line about a character going to Earth because they wanted to go to Hawaii, and that's the sort of thing where I was like, but once you're on a planet in Star Trek, you can kind of go anywhere with the transporter. You know, it, 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 uh, Benjamin Sisko lives in New Orleans when he's on Earth, but he goes to he goes to work in San Francisco. It's not a problem when you can beam there instantly. <laughs> so, so you may be right. They could be. That's my assumption that they could be that they may not be in the uh, uh, they may not be in the capital in Romulus, but they are always announcing about the Senate and there's traffic fluctuations when the Senate comes in and out of session. So I've always assumed that they've got to be at least close, or Romulans are really addicted to whatever their equivalent of C-SPAN is. <laughs> <laughs> right. I feel like we talked a little bit in the last episode about how this, this network of caves was inside the main city, uh, uh, or that we, we had come down that conclusion, which just reminds me I'm from Kansas City, and there's a huge, amazing limestone series of caverns underneath that city, so it just made me think of home. Mm. All right, back in the Star Trek world. Uh, we rejoin Riker uh, in a bar near the Quailar 2 depot. Uh, turns out that the pianist at the bar is the ex-wife of the captain uh, of that ship that uh, Riker blew up. Uh, she informs Riker uh, that the person Riker should be looking for is Omeg, a fat Ferengi who's a regular at the bar. Kate, is the line Andorian Blues racist? <laughs> What? <laughs> Since they're blue. <laughs> should Riker be canceled? How dare you? Riker should be canceled for so many reasons. Like, add this to the list, I suppose. Uh, this is a fever dream of a, of a scene, right? and I'm living for it. I just, like, I don't know what the white pointy stick is that she licks. I don't know Suck what... Salt. I don't know. I don't know what it delivers, like to the, you know, amygdala or like whatever it stimulates the hippocampus. Uh, I just, I love it. I think the creature work or the um, makeup work on her is fantastic. That nose area, which with, I mean, is just unlike anything. I just love it, and I love her. It's like the skin is folded around uh, and yeah. it's, it and creates a really strange looking orifice that I was just staring at, I'll, I'll be honest, the entire time she was speaking. Because <laughs> I was like, how does that work? I don't understand it. Um, I also just noted that, of course, Riker, even though he's very good on the trombone, uh, Jonathan Frakes is, he can't play piano. That was clearly a body double and I could tell. And uh, so shame on you folks for for not <laughs> mixing that enough i wish but he I, cracked his knuckle yeah right <laughs> i hate to say i think that she also was not playing all of those hands herself <laughs> <laughs> it, but it is like a wonderful a wonderful scene really weird it feels like a star wars cantina type of scene that we don't i don't often see 
uh, in Star Trek. Um, it actually felt a little bit like the original uh, movies, right? Because you do get a couple of bar scenes with McCoy and, and stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, I remember that with the there's like a video game thing happening in Star Trek three. I love that. Um, so it felt very cinematic, which is um, great because of the set dressing. It, it was it was very different than a um you know the clean lines of start uh, that the enterprise uh, usually has on its uh, sets and things like that. It felt real and lived in, uh, and uh, the performance by this actress is is really great. Back and forth between the two of them, uh, I believe it. I believe it. All right, Eric. It, it's also the whole Riker storyline in this episode. It reminds me, at least this scene specifically, reminds me of the Data Picard scene in the first part, which is. Everything in the first part is kind of somber and serious, and all of a sudden you get a scene where like Picard's trying to sleep and Data's just staring. That scene is hysterical, and this scene is, so <laughs> I, I think, similar. Like this is a very political episode. It's very canon and lore heavy. It's very, it relies on you having a fondness for Spock to at least not fully emotionally engage, but to appreciate what's happening in the narrative. And it, I think it's really smart to have just this couple of goofy scenes in this alien bar. She's incredible. She's so good. And you're, I'm also looking at the weird nose thing. It kind of reminds me a little of, um, uh, is it Kivas Fajo, the collector that has like the weird swirly thing that go? Mm. It reminds me a little of uh, somebody in his in his group. But um, yeah. I, I also want to say this this scene for me really reinforced how special this two-parter is because they've got Nimoy. And when you guys were going through it at the start and breaking down all the guest stars, it's a great reminder of there's a ton of guest stars in this episode. There are also just an insane amount of sets. There's the Klingon ship, the Romulus sets, and then they add this alien bar. They they really went from just looking at this, like from a, from knowing how what it takes to produce an episode of TV. These two were a lot of work because it's so outside the realm of a weekly pattern episode. I also want to say that it's always nice to be reminded, and it always seems to happen with Riker because he's open for business, <laughs> that when two people who are open for business meet each other, they recognize each other right away. <laughs> and these two characters were born to be this yes. kind of banter friend. And it was nice to see them recognize each other immediately and, and play that scene out. Well, and after seeing the whole episode again, I imagine Michael Dorn's on the sidelines going, you ain't seen nothing yet. (laughs) But we'll get there. We'll get there. All right. Back on Romulus, uh, Parduk introduces Spock to Neral, and it all seems to be coming together. Uh, Hold on. Did I jump ahead? No, that's it. It's the the Security Council office. Yeah. So they're in the Security Council office. And um, again, here, Greg, what did you think about uh Neral in this scene I like you I kind of bought it uh to begin with um but then when Spock showed skepticism uh he's a little you know he does his even like you know blinking eye gif guy right. uh kind of uh reaction <laughs> um and that was that was the first kind of crack in me remember maybe it is the nascent remembering of of uh, of, of this, but it, it was like, hmm, he seems like Neral is giving all the right, uh, uh, you know, l- letting Spock hear what he wants, to, thinks he wants to hear, um, and it is also of note here. I think in this scene is where Neral mentions that Pardek is being invited to a state function for the first time in a long time, and that also mm-hmm. clued me in a little bit, being like, hmm, there's ulterior motives here, like maybe. 
maybe there's a, a, a reward Ooh. here that we're not seeing. Um, Very so, perceptive of you. Yeah. So as Spock is leaving here, I I actually started to feel like mm, this is this is bullshit. Um, uh, okay. Something something doesn't smell right. Kate. From the moment he met the guy and he knew how to do the Vulcan salute, I was like, I don't trust this guy. He is. I don't think he is gonna be up to any good. Like I I don't. He was too earnest. He was too uh, accommodating. Like he was too. You know, because that's a situation that would be fraught, right? Like in the, you know, under the circumstances, like even if you are uh, sort of feeling like you're ready for open talks, it would still be like, ooh, this is awkward and this is a tense moment. We should, but this guy is just so much like puppies and rainbows that I was like, nope. Man, I'm the only sucker. I did not. (laughs) I bought it hook, line, and sinker. I mean, I... I was a little hesitant. I was like, why is Spock just like, everything's just working out. Like it does seem a little <laughs> too easy, but I didn't suspect those two people. I knew that Sella was around, right? So I was like, she's the, the culprit of, of it all. I didn't suspect these two at all. Man, I'm a dupe. Uh, and then of course, right there at the end, she uh, comes out doesn't say anything and they just kind of and he kind of has this great little look just like hmm yeah that's great from the shadows from the shadows from behind the door okay so we'll get back to that it seems like i I was worried i jumped ahead and i'm glad i didn't disappoint myself uh by eventually (laughs) jumping ahead so um we have then spock and picard uh rejoining the the literal underground movement um, and this is where Spock shows that he's uh, uh, suspicious, after all, about uh, how everything just seems to be coming together. But ultimately, he decides, yeah, it might be a trap, but I'm still going to go ahead with it because even if it is a trap, knowing that it is a trap uh, is valuable information. And this, to me, this scene, whenever you watched it, it really crystallized what's special about the Spock portrayal in this episode because he is different. Then we see him in the original series. And I mean, it's so far removed by that point, even in the in the timeline of the franchise. But even the movies, it's we we see a significant evolution of Spock in the scene that I think is really cool that I, I kind of clued it to, which is first off, Spock is being emotional. He keeps assuming in the very in the teaser when Picard's like, I've got something to tell you, Spock immediately is like Oh shit, Sarek's died. I mean, subtext. He doesn't say that line, but yeah. <laughs> but can you, can you imagine? <laughs> but, but but he knows, and he's and he has like an emotional reaction, and and I want to get into a little bit about why Nimoy and Spiner especially were so good in their respective roles shortly. But uh, yeah. But for me, it's like Spock's emotional. He and when they go after they leave and they have the little spat and he tell he tells Picard you're just speaking for Sarek and Picard's like you tried this twice now to tell me that I'm speaking for your father it seems like you're the one that needs that's having some issues here, but also Spock's acknowledgement that pure logic doesn't work for him is for a scene that's going to come up shortly about Spock and his relationship with his humanity he's more human or at least more comfortable with himself in a way that we've never seen. And that, that little line about where he's like, my dad believed in pure logic and I don't. And, and he's like, and it's like, it doesn't matter what logic says. I feel like I have to do this. That is not Vulcan at all, but it is very Spock. And I, I thought that was a really, 
I don't know. There's a lot of there's a lot of little wonderful dynamics and nuance going here that makes Spock feel like the Spock we know, but also feel like it's been 79, 80 years and there's been some evolution. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's cool that Picard is in this weird situation where he's um, venerating Spock. Right. He knows Spock's history. He knows everything that he has done, uh, as we do from his deeds in the original movies and, and the original series. But he, he, Picard also has to be a bit of a weird father figure to uh, Spock in this scene, right? And that's what calls him out. And he's like, no, I, I'm not. Even though I've melded with your father, I had that relationship with him. You know, like, I, I'm just doing this for me as Picard, the, the you know, Starfleet officer. Um, it's a fascinating nuance there that I didn't really think about until you started mentioning it, Eric, that it's uh, so many different levels of playing happening here. Uh, also within an audience, right? Like, everyone's watching this all happening as well. Uh, I thought that was pretty fascinating. All right. So then um, the three uh, amigos head back to the Klingon ship uh, where Picard removes his ears and we get some uh, special time between uh, Data and Spock already alluded to. Um, there are more than a few lines where uh, we hear the iconic Spock line, fascinating. So guys, uh, let's let's unpack this one. What did you find fascinating in this scene? Uh, and I think we should piggyback off our, our just previous conversation. Eric uh, with a C, just let's dive into it now. This is where we we get some acknowledgement about who he who's a, who's seen as and who he uh, identifies as now. When I when I first started just to be a little meta with it, when we, when we first started talking about doing this episode, I was so excited because I was like, that's the episode that has the Spock data scene because i don't know at this time especially if you can have a better fanfare a fan favorite pairing than data and spock you know they, they everybody loves the captains all the characters have their fan base but i think data and spock are the the two cast members that really people unfamiliar with the franchise kind of have some understanding of what i think is so fascinating about this scene getting past even kind of it's not it's not really a funny scene it's not like the scene where data and picard are stuck in the klingon ship you know that scene's out and out i'm laughing this scene is two characters that are similar having to talk about picard and and seeing how they work but the thing that stood out to me the most that i thought was fascinating is spock and data kind of get lumped together i've lumped them together already because they're both the outsider finding bits of their humanity or experiencing bits of their humanity, but they're at their core kind of inversions of one another, one another, and that's why I really like them. Spock is a character, and I think Strange New Worlds is doing a lot of success with this, and I think Ethan Peck's had a lot of success with this as well. Uh, mm -hmm. The Nimoy Spock is barely holding it together. He is a person whose humanity is always threatening to come out and he is working actively to stay in control. Spock seems cool and collected, but internally he's usually pretty jumbled up and pretty uh, kind of, I don't want to say in crisis because that makes him seem like he's unreliable, but there's always this, this balance that he's, he's uncomfortable with and he wishes it would be just Vulcan. Ten he tends to want to turn off his humanity so he can just be Vulcan. Data's the opposite. Data is a person who operates in a realm that we would think of as like being perfect. He's super fast. He's super smart. Spock even highlights it in this conversation, but he wants to be imperfect. He wants to be human. And that's what I think is so fascinating about these two people is they're the outsiders that have a strange relationship with humanity that makes them uncomfortable or they don't fully understand it. But the difference is they're reaching in opposite directions. It's seeing them together 
I don't know. It it underlies the very special and unique dynamic I think they bring to their crews, but also the ways in which they are so different from one another. And I don't know. I could watch a whole I could watch a I would watch a sitcom that's Data and Spock as roommates. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Odd couple. Kate, anything for you? Uh it's just Eric just spoke so eloquently about it. I don't want to. I don't want to go much more. Uh, other than it's just uh, such a satisfying scene for fans of the series, but also for fans of just spectacular acting and and commitment to character and two people who have honed their craft uh, to such a. A, a high point um, to be able to see them together in that scene is just a, a little nerdgasm, right? Like it's just, uh, it's just a fantastic uh, scene study and character study. And I'm, I'm, I'm for it, not against it. Yeah. And you know, outside of the soap operas, you don't find uh, it's an exceeding rare thing where an actor gets to develop a character over decades. So, you know, this started in the 60s, we're in 91, um, and he's he's been able to go back to this character um, and just growing as an actor, you're gonna, your character's gonna evolve because you're gonna find new choices. You get older and your point of view is gonna change and you're gonna make different choices than you would have probably as a, you know, a younger actor. Um, so it was really nice to see that. And I love that, that it seemed that his choices were also impacted by the other characters in the franchise. Like they had a contribution to who Spock has become. And that I found uh, very satisfying in this scene. Yeah. And you mentioning that, Jimmy, really made me think of uh, Nemo, Nimoy's um, memoir, I think he wrote in the 70s, which was, I am not Spock. And he was trying to say, like, you know, I'm I'm an actor. I have many things. That's just one of my many characters that I have created. And right. was really trying to, you know, distance himself from his Star Trek character. And then in uh, 95, he has uh, another memoir where he says, I am Spock is the title of that one. And it's the complete opposite. And he's really realizing yeah. how important, you know, this character was that he's developed. And not just to you know, all the fans out there and everyone, but to him himself personally, how much he has grown and changed by embracing this character and doing that. And so this being filmed in 91 and all of his experience with the movies, I feel like we were seeing Nimoy on this journey of embracing, um, in some ways, this this character, the same way that Spock is trying to embrace his humanity and his 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 uh, Vulcan side in here too. Like we're actually watching it happen. Even even the fact that he was willing to do this episode right at this right time, it seems like it was, it was uh, we're, we're seeing him in transition here. Not to speak ill of the dead at all, but I'm sure that when your race car driver psychic TV show doesn't take off like you hoped it did, uh, <laughs> you might re reimagine your relationship to Spock, the 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 guy who brung you. Um, but but that said, uh, I I'm glad you mentioned the the fascinating Jimmy because like at the end of the scene, the last time he does fascinating there, and then I think we get one more later in the episode. I literally did peel off to the garage to smoke a joint and <laughs> think think about yeah! his relationship like, yeah! with the word fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and like how incredible this particular use of it is too. Yeah. And like all the different layers you can see but not um but not peel 
uh, from yeah. the performance is is really just a joy, just taking that word in uh, by itself. It yeah, no, that's like- well said, Eric, with uh, Kay. Um, because that fascinating, that's right at the end where it's like, uh, that seem data has something to the effect of that seems very human. And all he does is that, that had not fascinating is like in one word, he's saying a whole bunch of stuff about who he was, the journey he's made and who he is now. And, uh, it's one of those goose pimple moments. Cause you're like, not only is he acknowledging something, but it's like this actor is responsible for creating a character now that two other actors have had to step into the shoes of, but he also was the first Vulcan. So he set the, the tone in the scene for how all other actors have to approach being a Vulcan. That's huge. It's fascinating. <laughs> I mean, as and an I've, actor, like I that wanna, is huge. I want to point out still that moment uh, that we're still talking about that, that last fascinating, like that's such an example of, I, I like to say that writers and actors are, are natural allies mm-hmm. and there's just no mm-hmm. getting around it. And like the, the writer of the script of the screenplay didn't have to meet with Leonard Nimoy to explain. They didn't have to talk to each other about the various layers or the rhythms uh, and that nobody had to talk to the editor, like all of these professional creative people knew what this scene was the moment the writer wrote it down and they all just kicked it out of the park you know kicked it out of the park yeah like that's a thing (laughs) (laughs) canon it goes right up there with smile out loud (laughs) this this scene Uh, also for me shows the little emotional the little bits of emotion that Nimoy and Spiner allow themselves to show it's it's wrong to say Spock and Data don't show emotion you can regularly catch you know you could always the 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 canon fan argument will be well Data's emulating emotions and to which I say Data got his fingers tucked in a Chinese finger trap in season two so let's, <laughs> let's maybe pump the brakes a little there on him doing complex nuances but but Nimoy, but you can't, if it's just flat, it's not going to be interesting. You know what I mean? If it was totally unemotional, you would, the audience wouldn't be engaged. And, and Nimoy and Spiner have a real talent for adding just a little emotion. If you look a lot, Data has like, he, uh, Spiner smirks a lot. You see it in this episode, uh, in the last act when he does the nerve pinching, uh, and yes. yeah, and Spock comments on it, but he does it all through the series. And it's, I think it's why that portrayal works because we understand the characters are alien. We understand they're not emotional, but you can't just tell the actors don't do anything. And, and this would be something we do on discovery. We did a lot, especially in our seasons uh, three and beyond. We had a recurring Vulcan character and she was great, but exactly what you were talking about, Jimmy, where Nimoy set the mold there. When you start working with an actor playing a Vulcan for the first time, they and it's nothing against them but they will try to go to their normal box of like actor and emotion tools and if you tell them don't have any emotion they'll i've seen it go the opposite where it's just completely flat so there is such a fine line and you've got it a lot of actors are really really good at it and we've seen such wonderful wonderful vulcan portrayals beyond nimoy obviously tim ross is tuvok um uh, Tara from Discovery, who played our Vulcan president, Tarina, I always thought was wonderful. And she was supposed to be literally mm-hmm. a guest star 
and we brought her back because she was so good at being a Vulcan. And yeah. by the end, she was, you know, basically one of our, uh, she was almost recurring. And, uh, and the love story there is amazing. Oh, yeah. Well, that was. Uh, and in Unification 3, you see the beginning of it. You're like, oh, please kiss, 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 well, kiss, kiss. In, in my, in my, uh, <laughs> my first episode was the one that, uh, that kind of shifts. It's the one where they meditate together. So I, oh, I was yes. always big on uh, uh, yes. the Saru Tarina. But, he, but yeah. more so it's just to your point about Nimoy really set the mold here. He really did. And to this day, we're still going back to it and we still, you know, we're still working with the actors and, and it's hard to learn to play an alien. And those two, even though data's not an alien, he's an Android, but he's alien to our relative experience. Those two, especially to me are the MVPs for playing the role without emotion, but it's so imbued with warmth and compassion and just real 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 wonderful work from both of them just like this Ferengi we're about to see <laughs> yeah so uh I mean we've already had some great moments but <laughs> this next scene is everything I hope for in a TNG episode uh I mean war piano side <laughs> This was, from the moment he walked up to that piano, oh. I was like, yes, this is a 10. <laughs> this is a 10. Kate. It's I, it's perfect. It's everything about it is just his, yeah. uh, the look on his face before he starts to sing is just so uh, evocative, right? Like yes. all, and, and through all of that, you know, face makeup, like the, I, I think you forget sometimes that yeah. Michael Dorn is able to give such full and fully realized and funny performances yeah. coming out, you know, with, with, through, through all of that, um, those appliances on face. Um, and, you know, I, I she is just wonderful as well. Like we get to hear what a Klingon opera sounds like, and it's everything you think it would sound like. Uh, it's just yeah. it's just perfection. Agreed. It's so good. Uh, my favorite bit he is kicked when it out of the park. The the, <laughs> the person uh, that he makes eyes with at, at the table next to him is my favorite yeah. bit. Where I, you think he's gonna, that character is going to say something, you think it's going to do something, and then he just walks away. He walks away. <laughs> Laughed. Out loud. I'm not fucking with a Klingon singing opera. <laughs> He knows what happens uh, in the plot of that uh, opera. He kills me. <laughs> Again, I think when they auditioned Michael Dorn, they're like, this guy is a perfect Klingon. He's fierce. He's big. He's intimidating. And like two episodes in, they're like, wait a minute. <laughs> this dude funny. This, this guy's, guy's Jerry funny, Lewis. dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's hysterical. When you rely on Worf to be funny... Worf, Worf to me is one of the funniest characters in all of Star yes. Trek, and it's it's strange because the role I even struggle to describe what his role is in like a comedy dynamic because he's not the straight man. Worf is usually like part of the joke, but he's never a clown, and it's you know, the the humor comes from he is just so removed from our our culture and our conduct, and that's you know him singing Klingon opera. It was essentially a dive bar. Is that like someone? Is that like someone singing our opera in a dive bar, or is that like a common? It, so that element of it's funny as well. But I don't know something about Dorn. 
Doran and Frakes, they are very funny. And when you pair them together, they are very funny. I think that's one of the reasons Picard season three, they really leaned on that dynamic after they pair mm. those two characters. After those two characters are in the narrative together, they kind of keep them together. And yeah. it's because yeah, yeah. they have such a wonderful chemistry together. But they also, I, I just, I don't know. I, I, I would much, I prefer Worf as... If you can't be noble and honorable, like you got to make him a little bit of a stick in the mud and a little bit of a source of amusement because it's he works narratively better than that than when an alien just beams on the bridge and tosses them over the arch, you know, to show how strong they are. That that would, that would, that was diminishing him. So it's like I love whenever right? they let him be funny. It's always great. Agreed. Uh, so in the other half of the scene, we have Riker interrogating Omag. Uh, <laughs> And he goes at him pretty hard, uh, and the scene ends with uh, the napkin Omag was looking for was right behind him the whole time. <laughs> I feel like when they're in doubt on on what to name a Ferengi, they just come up with like the name of an Irish village. <laughs> it, 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 it's a little frustrating. <laughs> I do want to shout out to the design team for the the two companions of uh omag like <laughs> fantastic work especially one of them cosplaying share like like full-on bob mackie you know um, but it's you know i i also wondered like are is this in federation guidelines in terms of, of interrogations it feels like it goes like where was the good cop i wanted right. <laughs> <laughs> worf was the good cop that's the problem in this scenario <laughs> cowboy diplomacy uh yeah no that that bit with with riker doing the knife again and, and it just reminded me of like jimmy Kahn and godfather like you know crashing the 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 camera and throwing the money afterwards it was just like yeah no here you go Get out of here. Uh, <laughs> such a great FU moment. It made, made me laugh almost as much as Dorn did. <laughs> uh, and a lot of the actors, the background actors in this scene, we've seen in other TNG episodes. Like they, they recycle through. Um, uh, I didn't know any of their names, so I didn't bring them up earlier. But they're, they're people that they, uh, they relied on. Uh, all right, so the next scene is very short. Um, really, just uh, it's a scene with uh, Picard and Data and Riker and the crew on the Enterprise exchanging what they've learned about the plot so far. Um, and then Riker sent off to uh, Galadorn Core uh, to to do his business, um, and uh, we get that that code. So then we jump over to the Klingon ship. Um, Data has uh, intercepted a code from uh, the Romulans, and it's 1400. I'm sure that will have some importance, uh, and it does very quickly. Because uh, in the next scene, um, Picard delivers this message to Spock, uh, and he puts it together instantly. He knows what's happening. The code could only be the time that uh, was set for uh, this big presentation and that means uh he has been uh betrayed what do you guys think bamboozled he's been bamboozled run amok duped 
I love that Galornan Core is mentioned, uh, honestly, here, because it, it, it was the, you know, all the Romulan episodes that we've dealt with before. Jordy, uh, I think, was there where he was yeah. uh, abducted by the Romulans, and you saw, you know, uh, Dorn or War for the first time kind of, you know, kind of lose his, his shit against the Romulans. So that was really cool to kind of be like, oh, yeah, I remember that being on the neutral zone. I remember that being a hot spot of what's going on. So great uh, continuity there. Um, and uh, yeah, four, 1400, I was. For some reason, I was transported into the hair song uh, from the musical Hair. Uh, so I was singing that throughout this entire scene. Uh, and then I was like, oh, my God, wait, he betrayed us. Strong. <laughs> Kitty. Yeah, so this is where we find out that uh, Pardek is the uh, backstabber in the scene and Sela is all behind it. Uh, Eric, what did you think about that? I wanted to ask... When do you guys think Pardek betrayed Spock? Because they say, I mean, not like in the episode, we know the moment that Spock is aware of it, but Pardek says they've been friends for 80 years. Mm. Has this been an 80 year con? Because it seems like they would have had plenty of time to grab Spock over eight decades. Or is this a recent, is this a recent development? Is there pressure on Pardek? They don't really explain it. I'm curious to hear what you guys think. Eric, what do you think? Yeah, I think it connects back to the the moment Jimmy was talking about earlier where the minister was like he hasn't been in these kinds of meetings in decades. So, like, I think it was his way back in uh, and to feeling relevant again. And, you, I mean, even today, Bill Maher just announced he's bringing his fucking show back without any writers. Like, these guys mm. cannot feel... Um, like they're out of the spotlight for very long without just giving away every ethical thing they pretend to have. So like, mm, yeah. um, not not to make it about right now, but <laughs> yeah, well, that's disappointing to hear. Oh, yeah. I haven't liked yeah. him for a long so, time, anyways. I, I don't think I, it was that long. Go ahead, Jimmy. Yeah, I don't think it was that long either. In that long in Vulcan in in Romulan years could be uh, you know 15 years because they live for so long <laughs> but the way that parduck uh, uh says goodbye made me think like this wasn't uh, a pleasurable to him like it is yeah. a cella it's not about uh you know i got you moment it was maybe patriotism from his point of view um or uh, uh um uh, self-preservation even like i i needed a way back in and this is the only way I could do it. But it seemed genuine that he was, he had, he seemed sorrowful to me that he had betrayed an old friend. And it, it seemed like they were friends and it was genuine from him. From that one line I got. Yeah. And I was going to say, I think there is, we, we kind of skipped over. It was a small scene early where Pardek and uh, Nayla, is that what the, uh, the pro console? Um, I think that was actually the moment. Maybe it wasn't actually Unification One where he says, like, do you know uh, Jean Luc Picard? Um, I think that was the impetus to him betraying Spock. I think he, yeah, I think he brought Spock there Ooh. on on. Um, this is my head cannon, so I don't know if you guys agree with it or not. But I think he brought Spock there under the don't point that thing at me under the uh, <laughs> um, uh, auspices of, of of being truthful and wanting to do what he wanted to do. But then he was basically caught, and that this guy had to be like, all right, well, you you've got this situation. We're going to use it uh, for our plan that's going to unfold here. And um, that scene was basically. Uh, the 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 closing of the trap there for Pardek. I love the immediacy. Right, and we get a nice little bit there with Sella saying there will be a unification. It just won't be what you thought it was. We're going to take control of Vulcan. 
And you're like, there's just nothing good about Sala. She's just rotten to the core. <laughs> to the Galorndon core. She's villainous, well, if you will. What's funny about her, too, is her intro, when she reveals herself to the heroes. I, I wrote down the line. What is it? Let me find it real quick. But the, uh, it makes me laugh because they say something about why do people need what – what are the Vulcan ships for? There's some question about what are the Vulcan ships for, and then she, like, pops out. She's like, you're going to find out soon. And all I could, th- <laughs> and all I could think of was – has she been in the shadows this whole this time waiting for there to be a question <laughs> so she can have the maximally yeah. dramatic? Because the yeah. Romulans are incredibly theatrical. That's what I love about them. And, yeah. and that's all I could think is she's just sitting there. She's like, please, please, Picard, just ask a freaking question so I can get out of this like little corner I'm in. Gannon. Uh, she's always hiding Cannon. off screen in every single Romulan yeah. scene from now well, on. Well, the next, the next scene we really see, uh, <laughs> a couple scenes later, we really see that she she's on the lower end of the batty school graduate class. Yes. Um, so meanwhile, uh, at uh, Galord and Core, uh, the Enterprise receives a message, ostensibly from Picard, saying that Spock's initiative has been successful uh, and to await further instruction. So this is the, you know, the big fake message about what uh, what's going to happen. Um, and then we go back to the pro council's office where Sela monologues about everything she's going to do. Uh, but what we really learn is that she would uh, prefer to be a writer. Uh, and yeah. she leaves her captives. <laughs> She and data, what is data, Data's line is so fucking funny. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. And Data offers help, of course, because he knows Cell is a fan of of Data. He's like, "Oh, you like me? Okay." So he's trying to return the favor. Um, she gives him a glaring look, <laughs> like, "Not now." That is such a um, that is such a great da- data. This again, yeah. the magic of data when you can put them in a life or death scenario, and data's like, maybe you should be in a different job. Doesn't sound like you're happy. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> the uh, the that this scene has two of those for me. It's that and when uh they get when she gives this whole speech to Spock, he's like, I ain't doing that. He's like, you're gonna kill. You're probably gonna kill us anyway. So why would I cooperate? Like, but they're the they are they are the most obstinate hostages, which is great. Like Picard, Picard's like, what can we do? We got to find a solution. And meanwhile, Picard, uh, meanwhile, uh, Data and Spock are just talking trash at the Romulans and making the situation <laughs> actively worse. Yeah, 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 yeah. And what I love uh, there's one moment in this scene that. I don't know if it was accidental or not, but it's when um, it's right after Spock says, you know, I'm not going to do it and gives all his reasons. And she's she's she says, fine, I hate Vulcans. I hate your logic. I hate everything about you. And it's like there's a split between these people. They shared a planet. They split apart. Um, and there's a great novel that describes how they split <laughs> apart and why they split apart. Um and and this is sort of at the core of it. Like they they were fundamentally different thinkers, um, and we get to see some of it come back in Unification Three, where we have uh, Romulans, Vulcans, and then somebody <laughs> people who are like kind of in between the two of them, yeah. and they all have different takes on how to handle the situation at hand, and they all have valuable takes. Like 
these are the best parts of us. And Pardek mentioned it earlier. You know, these are things you will come to appreciate about what we can offer the Vulcan uh, people. And we'll circle back to to that at the end. But uh, I thought it was something that they don't hammer on enough in TNG is that split between the two and why they're different. That it's not just play them differently because we want you to seem different. There, There's a philosophical choice as to why these two people have broken apart. Um, uh, and of course, uh, Sela leaves them, uh, uh, leaves them behind, uh, with everything they need to escape. That was the blunder. (laughs) Let me monologue. She didn't even set up a trap like Bond style that where they're going to die or anything like that. She's just like, here, just stay in my office. Don't touch anything. Don't go in the drawers. (laughs) Here are, you know, three of the most accomplished officers in Starfleet history. Yes. I'm just going to trust them here. They're cool. Right. That's why I say she was in the bottom of her class of batty school. Like, this is just rookie stuff. Amateur hour. This, for me, if, uh, okay, uh, I'll give, if Michael Pillar wants to to throw some criticism here, I'll I'll go, I'll give him a little hand. This, for me, (laughs) this, this final act is very rushed. And it's, I get it. You got so much, you've got so, so much. And I, and I understand every production issue that results in, in the, you know, why TV gets made the way it does and the choices that are made. But, this is one of those things where you could definitely feel the writer's room. This is my head cannon. When they're getting to Act Five, and they're like, "Okay, everybody's captured how Romulus and invasion forces coming. <laughs> we got to get this like tamped down pretty quick." So that it, this to me is like the one easy part. And it would have been, you know, you could have done something simple where she leaves up with a guard and they just nerve pinch the guards and then do the hollow gag. You could have, you could have done it, but it's the episode's very stuffed as is. There's so many people, so many roles, so many sets, and it's. This is again, the, my two nitpicks are, my two nitpicks, and again, I want to be clear, these are nitpicks. I love this episode. I love this arc. Mm. Um, the the conclusion, this part is pretty pretty fast, but also this is a good example of, when we, we were always arguing about this on Discovery to give a little insight into how the sausage is made, but where people are on the ships starts to become way more important <laughs> than you think it does because you have technology where they can beam anywhere, they can do all these things that can impact mm-hmm. one another, and this is a great example of, Data goes down to the plate. Like, Data hasn't been on Romulus much of this episode. It's always been primarily on the Klingon ship, except for the one scene where they just need to tell Spock they found a secret message, uh, something Picard could easily do. And that, to me, when I watch the episode, when the, when the whole away team's together, you're like, okay, this is when you get captured. Because it would be, it would split the narrative again. Then if, <laughs> if Data's not there, it, it, so I, I know why they do it, but it's one of those things where kind of when you when you learn it, you can't unsee it. And that for me was, I was like, oh, well, Data's gonna get captured. And obviously I know this having seen it, but it's uh, that that those two elements of, you gotta get Data captured, which is a little convenient. And then you also have to, the villains, leave the super intelligent Android in a room with a computer console, <laughs> which seems like a terrible and, idea. And hollow projectors. Yeah. Oh yeah, there's hollow projectors in the room. I didn't even think about that aspect of it because they use them twice, yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right, so we got a couple of short scenes here. Um, back aboard the Enterprise, um, uh, the Enterprise spots three Vulcan ships that are coming into the neutral zone. They're going really slow. Um, Worf questions Riker, but he dismisses that out of hand. We go back to the pro cancel chambers where Sela has her uh, that's inconceivable moment, um, finding that they're gone. Um, then suddenly the Enterprise crew shows up. We have a little phaser fire. Uh, and, and this was the big, what the hell are they thinking moment? Because uh, Sela's firing through and she goes, 
Hold your phasers as her phaser fire goes through, and then she needs to tell her people holograms. <laughs> or is she telling us? <laughs> or is that her inner monologue? I don't. <laughs> I don't know. You know, the gig was up. We didn't really need to be told. Told, told what was happening. Yeah, what was happening? Um, not much other than that. I mean, it, 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 Kate. Yeah. My favorite sorry. part about this scene is the you didn't get Riker's hair quite right, yes. and then oh, I, yeah. I rewound <laughs> to make sure that that was true, and it was like it had a little like curly cue kind of like down on, which is just such a beautiful little moment. I just love it. Yes, thank you. That that would have been a shame to pass that by. Uh, And uh, Data with another moment saying, I will endeavor to do better next time. (laughs) Be more observant. Like he didn't know what Riker's hair looked like before because he doesn't look at it. It's it's odd that Data chose to render one member of the crew that we know and then two people we've never (laughs) seen before. (laughs) Production-wise, I'm sure it's... Because if you right. if an actor has a line, you have to pay them as an actor instead of an extra. I'm sure production wise, it's Jonathan's here. Get him in the scene. It will take you know an hour and he'll be done. But it's just I remember when I was watching that because the line is funny about Data not knowing Riker's hair, but it also calls into questions about Data's recall. Like, can Data have memory recall problems, or did he just not? Because it, it's it's played like he didn't have enough. It's played like he messed time. up from memory. It's not like he didn't have enough time. And it would have been. It's one of those things where I like it. It's a funny joke, but the Star Trek nerd in me goes, "Wait a minute, can Dana, can, right. can Dana well, misremember?" Yeah, yeah. Humor trumps uh, canon. Oh yeah, that's every time that humor. And I don't know if uh, if Carlos said this. I apologize, but humor and what we call the rule of cool. Um, if something is sufficiently cool enough you can kind of get away with breaking some of your rules, but the the more you're going to break the rule, the cooler it better be. <laughs> right? That's a and d term for when you're dungeon mastering. Uh, you can, you know, the, hey, we got books and books and books of rules. You can break them if it's going to be a cool moment. Yep. Uh, so back aboard the Enterprise, um, we learned that certain distress calls only go to the med bay because uh, Beb shows up on the bridge to say... <laughs> <laughs> right. We got a distress call. Um, so they're about to rush off um, to go deal with this um, right before Spock delivers the truth. Um, and uh, it was a nice little moment because you don't know exactly what's going to happen. Maybe it's the uh, hologram Spock, but uh, pretty quick into it. He's like, this is all bullshit. And um, there are uh, 2,000 troops above those Trojan ships uh, going to, to Vulcan. Um, so we know uh, it's not right. And Enterprise uh, decides to intercept those Vulcan ships. Uh, and then we go back to Neural's office, and this is where uh, we see the nerve pinch. Delivered by Data in that little uh, sort of quirky smile that Data has before. Like, he thinks about it. Should I do it? Yes. And he turns back around and goes and delivers his little nerve pinch to Sella. Uh, who, Eric, I thought of you because I thought she did a nice little twist and fall. She lowered yeah, herself works. gently to the ground so she wouldn't yeah. shouldn't get hurt. Um, and then uh, we head back to um, the three Vulcan ships and uh, 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 Riker hails them. He tells them, you know, you got to get out of here. Leave the ships behind. Um, the Romulan ship decloaks and blows up the ships with two 
thousand Romulan Imperial troops aboard. I mean, come on, guys. What do you think about this? It's cold hearted. It War cold. crime. And they must have great recruitment numbers because that's a lot <laughs> of people to lose. Don't they have a transcendent? They, they, they say that they die, but they don't. I mean, yes, we don't know. If you're a they transporter, could've... right? You could you could transport them out, or at least some of them out before you blow them up. But yeah, that's true. I was thinking that might have been what they were doing, but at the same time, it's just such a villain thing. Uh, you know, Sela had just gone full. You know, Everything we know about the Rhyme suggests that maybe that's what they did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the where my where my head goes on the tech, like, did they do a mass beam off? Because they would the Enterprise theoretically would detect that. But also, I've always thought about how they. I, I've seen people criticize this episode because like three thousand, three uh, two thousand Romulans and three ships aren't enough to hold Vulcan. But I don't think the intention is to conquer the right. planet with two thousand people. The the plan is to make a Romulan outpost and like establish a foothold on the planet. But mm -hmm. um. So I've always assumed, like, my headcanon's been, they need a way to get those people off the ships pretty quickly. And we've seen, uh, we've talked about before, and I think DS9 talks about this, but there are ways to, like, mass evacuate people with transporters. Like, you can do mass beam-ups. It's not just, like, what you have on the pad. So I, I could see a world where they are like, well, we don't want to blow these people up, but... The other part of it is the Romulans don't like secrets getting out, and that's just 2,000 people that are going to talk right. about how they were part of the uh, secret invasion force. So it's just a little, to, to your point, Kate, do the, do the Romulans have recruitment, or do they have, like, forced-mandated service? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very North Korean, right? Like, there's, we just don't want our people getting out. And if they ever get out, we have agreements with the surrounding countries that you will send them back because we do not want our people out side of the confines of this country so and like and you know they're the baddies and tng has proven like once they lock onto some uh, a race being the baddies they're gonna lend you know try to have that race do anything that will make them seem bad well, uh, and that's kind of isn't it it's i think the episode title is the defector but there is the romulan defector and the romulans yes. are like absolutely not you're not getting that guy <laughs> like they are yeah, very right. they're very big on not letting anybody and also in um it was all a fabrication yeah. yeah, it's it's not I have the enemy I think, but it's uh I can't it's the but the Jordy episode where he's with the uh, with the Romulan. That's the whole thing too. It's like the Romulan when they take him back to the Enterprise, they all kind of freak out on the on the warbird. So that's a really great point. It is it is very culturally uh, frowned upon with the Romulans to be taken by any okay. culture, not your own. Um, all right, so then we head back to the underground one last time, where uh, Spock decides. He's going to stay behind to help uh, these Romulans. And uh, he gets to at least ease some of his daddy issues with a mind meld with Picard there at the end. Uh, what do you, Kate, what did you think about this last scene? Um, it's really beautiful. There, I have to mention, there's a kid in this episode that I mm -hmm. was so sure was going to die Right? <laughs> like, the very first scene that he ever came into, like, gee golly, well, I'm part of the resistance. Right. I was like, oh, this fucker's dead, right? <laughs> so, like, <laughs> so my brain was a little taken up with, in this final scene, like, oh, he's still alive and isn't, like, you know, the emotional driving force for what happens to bring people together. Um, but I really love this scene. I think it's, I think it's, you know, how do you how do you end this epic coming together of these storylines and these characters? And I think letting them have that moment of privacy 
mm. between the two of them where they share something that only the two of them could share is the exact right note to end on and it's and it's tender and it's uh and it's intimate and it's really just a beautiful moment i just think it uh, ties the whole episode together mm, just like the rug yeah. eric with a c don't give me your final thoughts um because i have something i w- maybe a point of debate to bring up what did you think about this scene and what did you take away i i really love this ending i love very intimate muted endings uh that was the for star trek those are the endings i get back to a lot you know I, you guys you haven't gotten to it yet i don't think right inner lights at the end of this season so you'll have another one coming up but uh but i i really love this scene and kate you're right the fact that it's with the two of them it's not the ship flying away it's not like the big fanfare it's it also kind of shows how crammed this episode is because the conclusion as the credits roll Picard and Spock are still on Romulus. Like, they are still deep in enemy territory. And then it, the episode's like, it's over. They get back. It's all good. But Which, which is fine. But um, I do, I really do love that final that final shot of uh, Nimoy reaching up to it. And it's just on Stuart's face with the credits play. And you're like, oh, this is where we're going out. It's, it's also, I should have touched on this earlier, but this is a sequel to a next gen episode I really love in some ways, which is Sarek. And to see that kind of be the button mm. on everything that Sarek shared this thing with Picard in a moment of, in a moment of crisis that he needed to do this meld. He didn't want to do the meld to give him stability to do his final mission. It's nice to have that juxtaposition of, I will share this with you if you want it. We're not under an immediate pressure, even though we're on Romulus. And uh, <laughs> I, I think it's a, it's a nice little uh, beautiful kind of conclusion to that arc that we saw get started in what Sarek season three, I think of next gen. Uh, Greg, what about you? I love that it gets this whirlwind. Everything's happening. We've got phasers. We've got ship explosions. We've got all the wonderful, uh, you know, villainous things that are happening. Um, But it does end with, uh, you know, um, a adult, two adult males uh, having a bond reminiscing about someone that they've lost right and i just think that's not done very often uh in television in general um but also just specifically in star trek right that it just ended with that that uh, we've used the word intimate a couple of times but it really is just like a yeah let's let's remember together your dad uh and you know share that right it's i i started thinking about a uh uh, you know, like a, a friend of, a, of, of someone's father, like sharing stories of what they were like, um, you know, in the old days, right, to a son, right? And that's just so beautiful. And I was reminded of how the early Star Trek Next Generation episodes used to do what uh, the original series did, which was have a jokey kind of, and that's the episode. Isn't that great of everything we've learned? And they have perfected not doing that uh, with this with this scene by it being so quiet and just uh, a, a, a physical gesture between two men that is not sexual in any way. It's just, let's remember together. Beautiful. All right. Now, now Eric with a K, I, I, I do want to know what you think about this last scene. However, please wrap that up in your um, wrap-up of the episode because for you, I have uh, a, a question I want to pose to you because you love to tell me how I'm wrong. So I also yes. love this whole, Ooh. the scene. It was very touching, but there was yes. one thing that I had some trouble with something that actually bothered me about the way they wrote Spock or a line he gave him. So I want to read the line. 
Uh, Spock says in regard to the Romulans and where they are and how they're taking this sort of underground movement, uh, he says in, they're going towards an inexorable evolution toward a Vulcan philosophy has already begun. And his whole take, the, what the, the lines they gave him, really bothered me because it seemed very Vulcan-centric. It seemed, it seemed like they were a total disregard of what the Romulans could give them, what their culture is. But it does tie into Undiscovered Country because they, you know, have that great dinner scene where they come up with that whole thing. Like the word uh, human is offensive where like you think about yourself. Right. You think that that we're the ones who need to be saved. Um, Did that hit you that way? Am I miss? Am I reading too much into that, Eric? With a K? Jimmy. Jimmy, 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 Jimmy. (laughs) As your favorite communist, I do not think you're reading too much into that. <laughs> I, I think there's, there's an awful lot of pressure on Hollywood in the best of times to, to be very pro-capitalist and very pro-Western thought. And I think that Roddenberry's uh, utopia was as, as likely to be drawn into that as anywhere else. You know, uh, the the idea that the, the the capitalist system and the and the free hand, you know, the invisible hand of the free market are going to solve everything was still very much, and still is very much uh, thought of as as where we're going. We take that uh, that quote of the the uh, arc of the world bends towards justice out of context, and we we like to think that that means it's all coming towards what we would like to have as a perfect world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what they use here. It doesn't quite work. And it, it if, if you want my final thoughts on the scene, it takes a, away from what I think is a beautiful, uh, just kind of long thought and, and concentration on the character of Spock and what Spock has been. Uh, you know, it is the last television uh, appearance of Spock from Leonard Nimoy. Mm-hmm. And, and at the time, this this wasn't necessarily <laughs> going to be a, a forever um, uh, uh, expanded universe uh, the the way it has clearly become. So it was it was an ending of sorts for Spock. And and at a time like this, where to bring the the politics back into it a little bit, when when uh, WGA and SAG-AFTRA are both striking, and solidarity is is strong right now, it is neat to see that the way they chose to celebrate this character is for everyone to just do their shit quietly and let the audience kind of think about what the character means to them mm. as, as the past meets the present in this, in this particular moment where, where one quietly reaches out and touches the face of the other. Like it's the, the music knocks it out of the park. The, even, even the, uh, the, uh, ambient noise, <laughs> of the alien world like all of the the things that we see in here in this moment gives us an opportunity to just kind of think about what spock has been uh so for me uh it, as the final wrap up here i give it uh nine and a half um romulan uh phaser settings which we didn't get to explore because they took the phasers away <laughs> we didn't know what the romulan phasers could do um uh uh, I think it's an amazing episode with beautiful acting, a, a terrific script, and uh, all up and down uh, with uh, mm. hints and portents of things to come in, in the various universes we enjoy now. Uh, I, I just think it's uh, among the best episodes of Trek. Oh, thank you, sir. Kate, what about you? Oh, my goodness. Final thoughts. Uh, I'm going to give this... Uh, 
I'm going to give it 10. I'm going to give it 10 uh, Vulcan or uh, 10 Klingon operas. Excuse me. 10 Klingon operas. Uh, And there's just so much to appreciate about this episode. And, you know, we, we had talked about when we looked at Unification 1 that that B storyline just makes no sense, right? Like, it's like, what is this story about finding some space junk? Like, what is happening? And uh, it it pays off in this episode, right? Where we get to see the collusion of, you know, getting those uh, ships together and all of the machinations that are behind the scenes. But mostly it just brings us to that fantastic dive bar uh, which is just such a beautiful uh, and and I think needed B plot for this episode um, because you know if we do take into account is it a little talking head heavy it is um, I don't hate it for that reason right like I'm not mad at it for being a talking head because you've got two of the best talking heads uh, you know talking mm. at each other uh, but. <laughs> but as far as <laughs> but as far as getting to have um, new characters that live in our in our brains, like I I don't know how I didn't remember those bar scenes because they are now etched mm. into my brain uh, for eternity. So yes, uh, I just again I think because of the importance of this episode and and what it lays out in the future. Um, Again, we've talked about the fact that they didn't necessarily know that they were going to be laying out so much for so many other, you know, series and and storylines, but they did lay that foundation. So I think mm-hmm. it's such an important episode, which is why I give it a TM. Greg. Sweet. Uh, I am going to give it uh, nine and a half uh, minutes I spent looking at that woman's nose. Um, (laughs) It is so good uh, on every level that we've mentioned. It sets up uh, so much, including like kind of Picard's connection with the Romulans uh, going forward. Right. You spend some time there um, to uh, all the things that we love about the fan service of uh, Spock and Data getting together uh, with a scene to uh, the Bam, bam, uh, Riker moments, uh, blowing up ships and having uh, some great back and forth there. Like it has everything that you need uh, in a Star Trek episode. It is touching. It is emotional. Um, and I love it. My only real quibble, and it's something I only really thought of as we were discussing this here, is that Sela is is really just uh, diminished to a, uh, a villain here. We don't get any of the context of uh, of her story, right? Like, which is interesting because it is similar, right? She's a human who's pretending to be a, or you know, a half uh, human, half Romulan in a similar uh, uh, vein that Spock is, that Data is. And so I would have loved a little bit more of interplay there, but it was already such a jam-packed episode that there just really wasn't anything uh, to try to unpack. Um, but I, 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 I'm, I wish they would. I wish they would have gone a little bit farther on that front um, and maybe. Uh, you know, uh, make this a three-parter uh, uh, in this timeline so that you guys could have uh, the wonderful payoff with uh, Unification 4. But it was a fantastic episode, must-watch, um, and uh, everyone uh, who was participating in this should uh, give them all a round of applause. And Michael Piller, give yourself a round of applause because it's yes. a really well-written episode. Yeah. Come on, kiddo. 
All right, Eric with a C, give us your final thoughts and uh, then follow up with uh, how can we follow you or find you on the interwebs? <laughs> well, uh, my social media presence is uh, intentionally somewhat limited. The best place to follow me is probably Instagram. It's just Eric James Robbins. I started with that one. Sorry. <laughs> but uh, but uh, as for how I feel about the episode, if I was going to give it a numerical ranking on a scale I would say nine bowls of uneaten Romulan soup. <laughs> Ten. This. <laughs> uh, I, I really, I really like this episode a lot, and it gets a lot of fun. The, you know, the criticism I have of it are minor, which is it's very stuffed at the end, understandably, and it's this isn't a criticism, but I think it's something to always be aware of, at least from the writing perspective. Is this is an episode that. You can watch it if you haven't watched Star Trek before, and it's entertaining. You can understand what's happening, but it's an episode that if you love Star Trek, that if you love these characters, that if you're familiar with Spock and what this means, it's so much more enriched. And I think that's honestly Star Trek in general. The more you get into it, the more enriching it is, the more you enjoy the stories and the richer the stories get to be. You you know, you're talking about um, you're talking about uh, Sela and it's like. This is Denise Crosby's, I think, final appearance in Next Generation until All Good Things. I, mm. I don't think she's back in the series, except in the in the early timeline in the finale. Mm -hmm. But I would have liked to see more done with her because there's something interesting. You made, I think it was, uh, I think Greg, it was you that made this great point about she, in some ways, is of that same archetype that Data and Spock are, the outsider in a culture that is trying to find their place in it for us and for us and following heroes in the federation we understand what that means it's about us accepting these characters even more fits into this you know accepting these characters for their differences but also they are enriched by their exposure to the federation and starfleet a romulan that's half romulan half human that is like in their security apparatus that is such a razor wire to be like a razor thin line to be walking and i to me that is one of the biggest criticism I have for this episode is it sets up a dynamic that I would like to have seen explored further with that mm -hmm. character. And they just never, they never went back for, I don't know, whatever reason, but uh, I'm glad Tasha's in the finale and I'm glad Denise gets to come back. But, um, but it's, that's the one thing that kind of sticks with me is there's a lot of, between this and redemption, a lot of uh, foundation is laid for that character. And then she just doesn't come back, which is a, a little disappointing. But other than that, this to me is the quintessent one of the quintessential crossovers it was we had mccoy in the in the pilot in farpoint but he's there just to be like a cursory passing of the baton this is a full-on original series character in a next generation story uh in the next gen world and getting to see how they fit into that i, I love it for that aspect of it i also think it probably unbroke i don't know if this is the case but my guess would be this broke the dam for also getting probably Doohan in season six for Relics, which is another episode that's a lot of fun. And also kind of starting off this, you know, we saw it again in the pilot, but to see them really go into the crossovers and embrace the crossovers, which we've seen all the way to this most recent season of Strange New Worlds. I don't know. There's such a fun, rich history in this franchise and fans that truly, truly truly love it I, I can't even begin to get into my experience with the fans and how much star trek means to them which i understand because i was a fan before i was working on it professionally but uh i, I love this episode because it it shows the ties across the generations and across the series that can exist and uh it really rewards people's investment into star trek as a whole
Well, I agree with everything you guys have contributed. Uh, I can't really add that much. I'm going to give it nine and a half uh, salt sticks. <laughs> um, I would give it 10, but in episode one, LeVar Burton pronounces materials materials. And that's really stuck with me and I think warrants a half point demerit on the rating. Um, should you watch it? Absolutely. It doesn't only impact TOS, it impacts TNG, it impacts uh, uh, Discovery. We see it in the movies because, of course, there's a whole movie related to uh, Spock going back in time uh, to try to fix the Romulan issue. And then we see it in Picard because Picard then takes up the mantle of trying to save the Romulan race. And maybe it started right here in that corridor where he says, these people are no one's enemies um it's just in every direction there's little tendrils that writers in different uh franchises different generations have grabbed on to and it 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 started right here um so you absolutely must watch this episode um and in fact it goes in if there's only 10 episodes you're going to watch these two are in those 10 episodes it's completely worth every single second uh, i really wanted to hear what everybody said um i have to drink so much water when i host um and i stuck around too long and i've wet my pants so i gotta go <laughs> Thank you so much for riding along with us on this episode of Re-Engage. Next week, we continue our mission with the next episode of the fifth season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Follow Re-Engage on Blue Sky and the site formerly known as Twitter at ReEngageTNG to get updates when episodes are published. You can follow our various cultural bridge officers. Kate Yeager is at Yeagerlicious. Eric Curry is at Eric Falls Down. Greg Tito is visible at gregtito.com and at Greg Tito on Twitter and Blue Sky. Jimmy G is at the Jimmy G on Insta. Reengage is edited by Greg Tito, Kate Yeager, or Jimmy G. Logo artwork is by mojojojo underscore 97 on Twitter or mojo97.com. Theme music is by Ryan Marth. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as we reengage. <laughs>